listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church in Fairfax, Virginia. We hope that this is an encouragement to you no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. If you're not already, we would encourage you to connect to your local church. If you'd like to find out more about Sojourn in particular, please visit our website at sojournfairfax.com. May God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of his word. My name is Emily Jones. I am the kids director here. I'm going to open up to John chapter 3. Verses 23, uh, 22 through 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because the water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears a witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's good to gather with you today. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. And if I haven't had the chance to meet you, I hope that we can uh, fix that today. I would love to, to say hello. So please come up and say hello. Introduce yourself after our service today. We also have a Connect meeting today after our service. So if you're new here, that's a great way for you to get plugged into the life of our church. Every week at Sojourn, we sing together, we have God's Word read, we pray through it, and now we spend time uh, just having God's Word preached over us. And so before we do that, before we dive into John 3 this morning, uh, would you just go to the Lord with me in prayers? Let's pray together. Father of mercy, we come before you this morning, and, and we pray that you would help us. I pray that you'd help us to focus. I'm sure a lot of us have lots of things going on in our lives, even just This morning, lots of things in our heads, lots of things in our hearts. God, I pray that you'd help us to focus today. God, I also pray that you'd help us to receive, to receive what you have for us today as we open up your word. This is an important text with important truth for us to pay attention to, for our own lives as individuals and for our life together as a church. And so, God, I pray that you would use this in our lives today to form us, to shape us, to be more like Jesus, to honor you with our thoughts and our actions, our words and our deeds, for your glory and for our own good. And as we go out into this community, to this city, to this country, to the nations, for the good of others as well. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would fill us this morning 
We pray that you'd help us to be attentive this morning, and we ask that you would use your word to transform our lives. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. There was a movie that came out a few years ago, about 10 or so years ago, uh, called 27 Dresses. Now, I'm not a big rom-com movie watcher, but occasionally they're fun to watch, and so if you either saw this movie uh, or maybe you've never seen it before. The, the kind of the premise of this movie is that Jane, who's played by Katherine Heigl, is the friend who's in all of her friends' weddings. In fact, she's been in 27 weddings. She's the bridesmaid in all these weddings, and at one point in the movie, she actually goes and she puts on all 27 of these dresses, some of which are pretty awful and heinous things that anyone would make her wear, wear is crazy. But she is the quintessential example of the saying, always the bridesmaid, never the bride. Now, it's a good desire to want to be married. We can go back and look at throughout Scripture, we see God has designed marriage as a good thing. It's something that he instituted as a part of his good creation before sin entered into the world. But that saying, always the bridesmaid, never the bride, has come to mean more than a commentary on your marital status. It's come to mean more than a commentary on marriage in general and being a part of a wedding party. It's come to mean in our culture, I'm never the most important person. I'm never the most important person in a situation. Maybe that's a wedding, but maybe it's just your perspective on where you're at in life at the moment. Well, as we come to our text today in this sermon series we've been walking through called Seeing Jesus, a sermon series where we're walking through the Gospel of John, where the Apostle John is writing to us to tell us about who Jesus is. And our hope as we walk through this sermon series is that we would actually see Jesus for who he actually is, that we'd set aside any kind of misconceptions that we have, whether you call yourself a follower of Jesus or not, and actually see Christ for who he truly is. Well, today we come to these last few verses in John chapter 3, and what we see is is that John the Baptist comes back into the picture The Apostle John is the author of this book, and he's mentioned this man, John the Baptist, now for the third time. What we see in this text, this section that we're going to look at, is not only that John the Baptist is content with always being the groomsman, never the groom, but it's actually a source source of joy and contentment for him. The reality is for us is that when we see Jesus for who he truly is, it should be a source of joy and and contentment for us as well. It's a countercultural way of thinking, but that really shouldn't be surprising to us because Jesus' kingdom is inverted. It's flipped upside down. The way that Jesus calls us to live is very different than the way the world calls us to think and live. He is the one who declared to us, the first shall be last. The one who says to us, whoever would be great among you shall be the servant of all. And maybe this morning you find yourself as being someone who doesn't yet know Jesus and you're checking out who he is and maybe learning more about what this whole church thing is about. And this idea of the first being last and the last first or not being in the limelight of life is intriguing to you. Maybe it's even confusing because our culture and our world tells you that you should pursue those things. Well, I hope for you this morning as we open up God's word that you'll see that it is actually a source of joy. And that joy is available to you in Christ. For those of us that are followers of Jesus, my hope for us is that we'll see that by playing the background, it's not a license for your life to be lazy. It's not a license in life to do nothing. It's quite the opposite. 
Instead, my hope is is that by seeing Jesus for who he is and being reminded of who we are, that God would use that in your life and in my life to cultivate humility within us as individuals and as a church, and by doing that would actually empower us together to exalt Jesus in all that we do. So with that, let's open up to John 3, 22 through 36, and may we see Jesus more clearly today. These first few verses are important verses, 22 through 24, but they really serve to kind of set the scene of what is the main focal point of this section of Scripture. What we learn in these first few verses is that sometime after Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, that we looked at a few weeks ago, where Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and he, he seeks to assess Jesus and ask him these questions and Jesus communicates to him and communicates to us, we must be born again. If we want to enter the kingdom of God, if we want to have a relationship with God, be reconciled to him, we need new spiritual life in order for that to take place. And so sometime after that, Jesus and his disciples, they head out of Jerusalem into the Judean countryside. The text says he remained there with them. Jesus wasn't rushing through the countryside to get to another city. He, he hung out in the countryside. Jesus' ministry was a, a ministry that took place in an urban environment. It took place in a suburban environment. It took place in a rural environment. Jesus cared about people no matter where they lived or what was going on in their lives. And what we see here is he slows down enough in this place to be with them. And people are coming out to see Jesus. And they're coming out to be baptized. Now at this point, baptism hasn't taken on its full uh, kind of meaning and, and purpose in the life of a follower of Jesus. Because Jesus hasn't yet been crucified. He hasn't yet been resurrected from the grave. And so now when someone's baptized, they, they have placed their faith in Christ. And as they come forward to be baptized, they are brought down into the water as a symbol of their burial with Christ and raised up out of the water as a symbol of their resurrection with Christ. And the water is a symbol of their purification. That's not the full picture of what the purpose of baptism is at this point. Baptism at this point is a sign of repentance. And that's the idea that we're turning away from our sin, we're turning away from our rebellion and turning towards God, and the water is a symbol of purification. And so people are coming out to be baptized. It's an outward act of a changed heart. And what we see in these first few verses, though, there are two different baptisms taking place. Jesus is baptizing, but we actually learn in chapter 4, verse 2, that Jesus himself isn't actually baptizing anyone. It's the disciples that are baptizing people. Jesus is overseeing that. And then John the Baptist is also baptizing people, as he has been now for some time. They're near each other, but they're not in the exact same place. And we, we also learn something interesting about John the Baptist that provides some context for the Gospel of John. It says this was before John the Baptist was put in prison. Verse 24. See, in some other gospel accounts, Jesus' public ministry really begins after John the Baptist is put in prison. So what the Apostle John is telling us is that everything that's happened so far is before all of that. Then we come to verses 25 through 26, which really kicks off this scene. Let's look at them again. It says this, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. Some of John the Baptist's disciples have already become Jesus' disciples. 
A disciple is a follower. It's someone who's seeking to learn from a teacher. They're following after them. And so these these people have been following after John the Baptist, but some of them, we saw this in chapter 1, have now started to follow Jesus, Andrew, John. But there are still some people that are loyal to John, still some that are following him. And they're having this discussion about baptism. People are having theological discussions a long time ago, as they still are today, (laughs) about baptism. They're talking about baptism. They're talking about purification. And somewhere in the midst of this conversation, it seems like Jesus comes up as they're talking to this other Jewish person. And so they go back to John the Baptist, and they, they come, and you notice they don't ask John a question. They make a statement, and it's a statement of concern, a statement of dislike. They're like, John, the one you bore witness about, notice they don't even say his name. That, that guy that you talk about a lot, John, He's baptizing people too, and everybody's going to him. And I don't know the exact tone, but this sounds kind of whiny to me. They're upset. They see John's influence diminishing, which means they see their influence diminishing. That more people are going after Jesus. The crowd around John is shrinking, and the crowd around Jesus is growing. There seems to be a little bit of a deeper question that they're asking in the midst of their complaining, and it's this. Is it right for people to follow Jesus? Is it right for someone to devote their life to Jesus? And Maybe that's a question that you have today. Is it right for people to put everything, all of their hope and all of their faith in this man, Jesus Christ? Well, John responds to their whining. He responds to their complaining in a pretty amazing way. Look at John 3, 27 through 30, says this, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, This joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John's trying to tell them, listen, anything that I've had, any following that I've had has been given to me by God. It's not because I'm an eloquent speaker. It's not because I'm an impressive person. God has given me these people to follow after me. But just like that, it's also God's intention for people to follow Jesus. In fact, that's always been God's plan. It's the will of heaven for people to hear the voice of the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world and begin to follow him. And really, this shouldn't surprise John's followers. He's consistently been declaring that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He's consistently been declaring to them that Jesus is the Redeemer. He's consistently been declaring to them that Jesus is the Rescuer. rescuer. And he has told his followers over and over and over again, I am not the Christ. I'm not the promised one. I was sent by God to point people to him. I was sent by God to help people see Jesus. What John is saying is this was never about me. This was never about me. It's always been about him. And he gives this fantastic illustration of being totally content with always being the groomsman and never the groom. He says the groom is known because he's the one with the bride. That makes sense to us, right? If you happen to stumble into a wedding 
and you're kind of curious about who's the groom, who are the players in this, all you have to do is look up front. You say, I know who the groom is because he's standing next to the woman in the beautiful dress that's standing up there. They're joining together. I, I know that. I see that. I see the person that the bride is with. The guy that's standing next to her must be the groom. And so God's people are often referred to throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament as a bride. So it makes sense for the bride, where God's people are, whoever they're around, to be the groom. So he's saying that's Jesus. Jesus is the one who God's people are joining together. And it doesn't put John out by this. He isn't frustrated by this. He isn't frustrated that all these people who one time followed him are now excited about and following Jesus. Because John goes, look, man, I'm the groomsman. I I love standing up here. I'm standing up here by the groom, and I'm cheering him on. I'm cheering this union that's happening on. I'm excited about this. And when I hear his voice, I rejoice. Because John knows how glorious it is that Jesus has come. See, John's disciples, they're dismayed that people are leaving John to follow Jesus. But John isn't dismayed at all. In fact, he says his joy is complete now. This is exactly what he's lived his life for, for this moment, for people to follow Christ. He puts an exclamation point on his posture. He puts an exclamation point on his position in verse 30. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Notice he says must. This isn't a suggestion or or, a good bit of advice. Like, it'd be a wise thing for Jesus to get more fame and glory than me. It'd be good for people to do this, but you know, I can't make people do anything. No, he's saying this is absolutely necessary for the sake of humanity, for people to follow Jesus. But not only must Jesus be more exalted, John must become more obscure and play the background. John needs to be like that guy that you've seen in movies and you've seen in TV shows and he's in a lot of them, but you have no idea what his name is. Or the background vocalist that's up there to accentuate and highlight the lead singer's voice, but you have no idea who he or she is. John's saying, I I need to be like that. Why is he willing to do this? Why is John so quick to let go of any kind of fame, any kind of notoriety in his life? Well, it's because of who Jesus is. And because of what Jesus came to do, which is what the Apostle John reiterates in these next few verses. See, the the quotation ends at the end of verse 30. That scene with John the Baptist is over. Now in verses 31 through 36, again, the Apostle John is doing what he often does. He's giving commentary on what's taking place. Notice what he says here. He says, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This text started off talking about baptism, but that wasn't the point. The point of this text is the exaltation of Jesus. And the Apostle John now is putting an exclamation point on John the Baptist's exclamation point. He's like, John said he must increase, and 
I must decrease. John the Apostle saying yes and amen to that. Yes and amen to that. And here's why. He, meaning Jesus, must increase because he's the one who is above all. John and all of us must decrease because we're earthly. We're, we're finite. We have limitations in our life. We are made in the image of God, but we aren't God. He must increase because he speaks of heavenly things, talking about Jesus. Jesus has existed with the Father in the Spirit for all eternity as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who has perfect community and perfect relationship and has existed in the glory of God in the heavens for all eternity. He must increase because of that. Jesus must increase because he's the creator and sustainer of all things. He is the very word of God that called all things into existence. Jesus must increase because the Father has given him the Holy Spirit without measure. He operates in the fullness of the deity of God to serve God's people. Jesus must increase because the Father loves him and has given all things into his hands. He is the king above all kings. He is the king above all peoples. He is the one who rules over all things. No one else deserves this kind of praise. No one else deserves this kind of exaltation other than Jesus. Yet, yet, what does John say? No one receives his testimony. Here is the one person who should receive all glory and honor and praise and worship and attention. Yet so many in the world then and so many in the world today continue to reject him or blind to his glory and grace. And when that happens, it isn't just a rejection of Jesus. It's a rejection of God himself. Verse 33 says that those who do receive his testimony, who receive Jesus' testimony, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Savior of the world, declare not only that Jesus is true, but that God is true. That means that the inverse is also true. To reject Jesus is to reject God and call him a liar. But the reality is, is that one of the ways that we can reject Jesus is by devaluing him and elevating ourselves to the place that he holds. And when we do that, we continue to call God a liar. Listen, if this is who Jesus is, that he must be made much of. But it's not just for the sake of fanfare. This is a matter of life and death. Look at verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is a summary of every person's reality. If you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. We talked about this Last week or the week before, what eternal life is, it's not just sparing your life. It's giving you a reconciled relationship to the living God. It's giving you more than you've ever had before. Being able to be with him in perfect community and harmony for all of eternity. And so if you don't believe, if you don't place your faith in Christ, you cannot have life. In fact, the wrath of God remains on you. And the wrath of God is poured out on sin and rebellion. It's a consequence for our rejecting God. And so God rightly pours out wrath on rebellion. So we stand in our own condemnation apart from Christ. We need someone to stand in our place. We need someone to pay for our sin. But notice John doesn't say those who don't believe. He says those who don't obey. Why is that the case? 
Because our fundamental problem is not rejection of God as existing. Our fundamental problem is not even rejecting Jesus as being the Savior. Our fundamental problem is rejecting God as King. As Him being the sovereign ruler over all things. As Jesus being Lord. Our core issue is that we want to be the master of our own lives. The ruler of our own lives. A place and position that we do not rightly hold. When we seek to commandeer that place and position, it leads to destruction and death. And friends, if that was the end of the story, that'd be a pretty terrible ending. But God has made a way. It isn't the end. God has given to us what he demands from us. Jesus, who lived a perfect life of obedience and willingly exchanged his record for our record of wrongs, our rebellion. So we need to understand something. Jesus is not an idea. Jesus is not a concept. Jesus is not a human construct. He is the Savior King who has come to set captives free. This is why Jesus must increase. This is why he must be exalted. So the challenge for all of us today, both for the person who already calls themselves a follower of Jesus and the person who doesn't yet call themselves a follower of Jesus, is that John the Baptist's posture towards Jesus isn't just for him. It's for you and me too. He must increase, but I must decrease. But if we look at our lives, we tend to do the opposite. Sometimes we're pretty overt about it, asserting ourselves, but often it's subtly. And we'll, we'll be fine saying, yeah, Jesus should get the spotlight. Jesus should be the main focus, but we kind of just want to share the spotlight with Jesus. Like Jesus, like scoot over a little bit. Let me in on some of that. Like we can do this together. Our culture encourages that. We like to be liked. We, we like to be lauded. We live in an Instagram culture, right? Like how many followers do I have? How many people are liking my picture of my food or the thing I did last weekend? I, I want to know. I need to know. And I feel validated by that. We like to be recognized. John the Baptist's viewpoint, his position is almost unfathomable to our culture. Like, why would you willingly decrease? If people are giving you praise, if people are recognizing you, like, milk that for all it's worth. Why would you willingly decrease? John seeks to exalt Christ at the cost of his own praise and his own exaltation. It's so often in our culture, we seek to build our exaltation and praise, and we do so by tearing down others, by speaking badly about those around us, by asserting ourselves as being better than other people. We like to increase. We like to be impressive to others. And sadly, this happens both inside and outside of the church. Where might you be tempted to do this right now in your own life? Maybe to share the spotlight with Jesus, to exalt yourself, to look for more praise from man. Where might that be happening in your life right now? I know for me, as I read this text, one of the most challenging parts of this text for me that, that presses on my heart and brings conviction for me is when John says, I am not the Christ. There are times when I'm tempted inwardly and outwardly, outwardly to be the Savior instead of point to him. There can be this temptation within me to, to be a fix-it-all. 
Like, I need to fix problems that are going on, whether they're at home or in the church or in relationships. There can be temptation for me to be a, a know-it-all, that it's difficult to say I don't know or I don't have an answer. I need to figure it out. I need to know everything. There can be a temptation for me to be an everywhere-at-all pastor or person, that I need to be at every place, at every situation, at all times, instead of pointing to the only limitless one. Maybe it's a burden that's placed on me, but I would guess most often for me, it's a burden I place on myself willingly. It's not mine to bear. The reality is I want glory. I want praise. But there is one and only one, all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present King, and He is the one who must increase in my life. Where might that be for you right now? As creatures created in the image of God, we need to learn, by God's grace, like John, to embrace our limitations. That we can't be Jesus, but we can point people towards him. Look back at verse 31 again. The second half of verse 31, it says, He who is from earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. It's about limitations. You're made in the image of God. You have limitations, though. You are a finite creature. We have to be careful here, though, because limitations aren't licensed for laziness. Like, we could be like, okay, I'm all about it. I'm going to embrace my, I'm going to hug my limitations and not do anything because I'm limited. It's not a license for laziness. Ambition is good. It's good, though, when it's rooted in making much of Jesus. As one scholar says, the opposite of ambition isn't humility, it's sloth, timidity, laziness. Playing it safe is not the same as being humble. See, the problem we run up against is that our ambition in life and ministry with this idea that we should exalt Christ above ourselves can become disordered, it can become hijacked like so many of our desires do. And when our main desire is to win, when our main desire is to be noticed, when our main desire is to impress and be impressive, We've gotten off track. What if God's goal for you, what if he's wired you not to be liked, but to be loved? And not by just anyone, but by one, the one who is love. God loved you while you were still sinning. God loved you so much that he sent his son to rescue you. Now, because of what Jesus did for you, you can be both fully known and fully loved. And it's freeing. To honestly declare with your mouth, with your heart, with your life that he must increase, but I must decrease. Because every time you do that, it's a reminder to you that you don't need to perform in order, or in order to earn God's love. It's a reminder to you that you don't need to prove anything. That Jesus has accomplished everything for you already. See, this example that John the Baptist gives is a call to genuine humility Humility that Jesus himself modeled for us when he came and took on the form of a servant and came to serve us. And now he empowers us to be able to have that kind of humility in our own lives. What John the Baptist is showing us is that genuine Christ-honoring humility, being willing and wanting to play the background, is not thinking of yourself less, but thinking less of your, I'm sorry, <laughs> flip that around. Not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's not to beat yourself down. It's not to say that you're not valued in the eyes of God. It's just not to focus your life on you. We live in such a self-focused world, a self-focused culture, and we bring that into the church. 
We can often think, how is this meeting my needs? How am I being served? Instead of coming and saying, God, how can I exalt you with how you've gifted me and serve those around me? See, this presses on a pillar of our culture. Our culture prides itself on being independent. Our our culture prides itself on being self-made and being able to do everything on our own. What this shows us is that we're not independent in any part of our lives. And that's certainly true within the church. All of you are gifted. All of you have abilities. All of you have things that God has given you a passion and a desire to do something to make much of him. But that is a beautiful picture when it all comes together. When we link up with one another, it's a picture of the restoring work of Jesus. If we as a church are going to be a healthy community, we need to not only figure out how we as individuals are supposed to be disciples who make disciples, but how we need each other to actually be able to do it. That I can't do this apart from my brother or my sister because it's not about me. It's about Christ. See, that leads to another challenge, another caution for us as a church and as God's people. We can look at a text like this and we can be tempted to think, okay, so what I need to take away from this, if I even just focus on verse 30 here, he must increase but I must decrease, is that I need to make sure I'm careful not to compare myself to someone else. I'm not going to compare my success to someone else's success. I'm not going to compare our church's success to another church's success. And, And that's true. We shouldn't go around comparing our lives to others, either, either for the sake of putting someone else down and elevating ourselves, or to, we feel bad about it. We look at somebody else and be like, man, I wish I was as good as them. I wish I had what they had. I wish our church looked like this church. Those are good things to not do. Moms, don't look at other moms and be like, man, I wish I was, had it together like she did. Man, their home seems so organized. Mine's chaos. Here's some truth. Everybody's lives are chaos. (laughs) It just looks a little different from time to time. Don't go around to the person at your workplace and think, man, I wish I was getting the accolades and promotions that they're getting. Or the brother in church right now who's getting the bonus and getting the promotions and getting recognized at his work and you can't seem to move up from where you're at right now. Those things are never going to serve you well to compare yourself to somebody else. Because that's not where your identity is. You are a beloved child of God, not because of anything you've done. In fact, the gospel continues to point out the fact that you were insufficient. (laughs) You couldn't get it all together. You needed a savior. You needed a redeemer to come and rescue you. So don't compare yourself to others. But you know what? That's not the main point of what John's declaring here. His point isn't, hey, don't worry about your fame in comparison to other people's fame. His main point is don't worry about your fame in comparison to Jesus's fame. Don't let your fame or your name ever outpace the fame and name of Jesus. There are going to be people around you every day, all the time, that have more success than you, that look better than you, that have things together more than you. You know what? You can have freedom in that because you don't care about that. You care about the name of Christ being elevated and exalted. See, one of my hopes is is if you come to Sojourn, if you're a part of this church, that you would leave every gathering of our church, every community group meeting that takes place, every time you serve together with brothers and sisters, every conversation you have with another person who's a part of this church, and you would leave with an elevated view of Jesus because of who he is. That if you're a part of this church, that you would never be tempted to be impressed by a person or a ministry, but only impressed with our Savior. 
That should be the goal of what we're about as a church and as a people, that we never want to compare ourselves to anyone, but always seek to exalt Christ above all things. So that means that if we're going to have an elevated view of Jesus as a church, we have to have an elevated view of Jesus in our own lives as individuals. When you and I see Jesus rightly as the one who is above all, as the one who is loved by the Father, full of the Spirit, as the one who took on the wrath of God that we deserve so that we might have life, if we see him rightly, it's no question that he deserves the only place of praise in our life and our community. Church, we cannot give head nods to Jesus and then move him aside in our lives. We can't share the stage of fame with Jesus. He is the exalted one. He is the king above all. He deserves all of our praise and all of our obedience. So let me ask you this morning, are you willing to be like John and play the background? Are you willing to be like John and always be the groomsman and never the groom? Are you not only willing, but content in doing so? If you've been apathetic to the exaltation of Christ in your life or our church, if you've allowed the circumstances of your, of your life to overshadow the glory of your Redeemer, even in the midst of your suffering and difficulty, if you've sought to elevate your fame or your name, even among a small group of people, maybe it's a friend or two or your community group or someone you serve with, if you haven't sought to see Christ increase and you decrease in any way, any shape, any form, let me encourage you, like I so often need to do in my own life, to repent, to turn away from that, and once again turn to Christ, to set your gaze freshly on the risen King who rules and reigns over all things for your good and His glory. Brothers and sisters, let's lift high the name of Jesus May his name and renown be the desire of our soul and the desire of our church. A way that we can continue to be reminded that we are not the Christ is by taking communion together each time we gather. See, every time we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we declare to ourselves and to one another that we could not save ourselves, but we needed a redeemer, we needed a savior. One who laid down his life for rebels like you and me. One who laid down his life for glory stealers like you and like me. So if you're a follower of Christ, I want to invite you forward this morning to eat and drink. And I want to invite you to come forward with joy, come forward with thanksgiving that Jesus sought you and saved you and now enables you to make much of him in all that you think and say and do. May this meal today help you to decrease so that he might increase. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I'm so thankful that God's brought you to gather with us this morning. I hope what you hear in this, that there is freedom available to you, that you can set down the desire to impress and prove yourself to anyone and know that because what Christ has done for you, God has placed his approval on you. So instead of coming forward to take communion this morning, I want to encourage you to take Christ today. Grab a hold of Jesus today. Turn to God, just even in your thoughts, just to pray to God and say, God, I need to be rescued. I need to be redeemed. I need to be brought out of this darkness. And confess that to God, that Jesus is your only hope. And if you have questions about what it means to know Christ, to follow him, to see your life transformed by him, that's why we're here as a church. We want to make much of him and we want you to know him. So let somebody around you know that as well.
For those of you that will come forward this morning, you can come to the tables at the front or the tables in the back. Tear off a piece of bread. Take a cup to drink. And what Christ, our exalted King, has done for you will be spoken over you today. Let's pray. God, we, we come before you and we just ask the simple prayer, yet complex for our own lives. We ask, God, that you would make this true for us. That you would help us to see Jesus rightly. And then in seeing Jesus rightly, we would seek to exalt him in every aspect of our lives. God, I pray that the, the easy-to-remember line of he must increase but I must decrease wouldn't just be something we memorize, but be the reality of our own lives. Be the reality of our church together. That because of who Christ is, that we would always, every moment of every day, seek to exalt him in our words, our thoughts, our actions. That we would never seek to steal glory. But God, I know there's going to be temptation to do that. There's temptation in my life to do that. And so God, we confess that to you. We repent of that. And we pray that by your grace and the help of your Holy Spirit, that you would turn us away from stealing glory to giving glory. Help us to be reflectors of glory. The people, if they're impressed with anything about us, they'd be impressed with Christ in us. God, thanks for your grace. Thank you for sending Jesus to rescue us. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon from Sojourn Fairfax. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at info at sojournfairfax.com. Go in peace. <laughs>